0: According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our text once again this morning is John chapter 2. John chapter 2, dealing with the first cleansing of the temple in verses 13 through 22. I think we covered the bulk of this material last week. We're going to use today to tie up some loose ends and also to take... A very pertinent side trip which is often overlooked in the course of examining the life of Christ because so much of uh, studies in that regard are oriented strictly to the human realm of interaction and not necessarily the angelic realm of interaction. But much of what the Lord was dealing with focused on the angelic realm and so we will examine such things here this morning. Before we begin though, let's take time for silent prayer to assure that we are filled with the Spirit divinely equipped to handle His truth, shall we pray. Mighty Father, we do thank You for the truth of Your Word. We come humbly before the throne of grace, recognizing that none of us deserves to have such privilege. But Father, You have so graciously placed us in Your Son. You've so graciously made us... um, Uh, given us that freedom of access that he enjoyed. And, Father, we want to use such privileges not to take them for granted, but to redeem them for his glory and for your good pleasure. And we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, this uh, is indeed the first of two times that the Lord cleanses the temple. We took the time to examine the uh, other cleansings from Matthew, Mark, and Luke last week in the outline we established the time context for this, that this is following the Cana wedding, that in examining John's sequence of events, that John is being very careful to delineate what happens and in what order that it does happen. Specifically in these early chapters, he is giving a, a day-by-day chronology, which we have noticed in, in reference to, uh, for example, uh, the chapter he begins with On the Third Day. And we have time references uh, all throughout chapter 2 where we have again on the next day, on the next day. And then in chapter 2 we begin with on the third day. And then we have a Passover reference in verse 13. Now, some scholars have gone so far as to uh, try to equate these two cleansings as, as one event. And simply, John was mixed up. John put it early, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke had it all late. In fact, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all unanimously had the cleansing of the temple in the Passion Week. And so, scholars who try to... And it's really sad in that these are the Bible scholars that are trapped In not accepting verbal plenary inspiration. These are the scholars that make the first assumption that God did not write the Bible. That man wrote the Bible. That basically we have accumulated traditions that over the years were gathered together into written form and that as they were molded and shaped, uh, a lot of times in written form there was an effort to try to harmonize the, uh, try to harmonize the events. And so all of that is a flawed approach. All of that is a worldly cosmic approach to the scriptures. And so when you are reading commentaries, for example, that are dealing with that, you might find uh, a place where they will say, well, you know, John was confused, or whoever this author was purporting to be John was confused when he recorded this as an early event as opposed to a late event. And I think we do ourselves a great favor when we can reject their false presuppositions and we can approach scripture with our true Presuppositions. We have presuppositions, but they're grounded in the truth. They're grounded in what God says about his word. For example, God says that he wrote his word, and we believe that. We take that as a presupposition, and we go from there. All right, so we have the time frame that's established. Secondly now, under point two, the Passovers recorded in the Gospel of John help us to establish a timeline for the ministry of Jesus Christ. In fact, if you cannot develop a chronology with any degree of accuracy by ignoring these Passover references in the Gospel of John. Three of them very specifically are called Passovers. The one in chapter 5 and verse 1 is simply called a feast, but I believe that it also was a Passover, which helps us to track a a three-and-a-half-year chronology or ministry of Jesus Christ. If we did not have the Gospel of John, if all we had was Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we would have no reason to believe that his ministry lasted any longer than about a year, necessarily. But the Gospel of John helps us to develop this timeline. Point three. This early cleansing of the temple preceded the arrest of John the Baptist which we find here in uh, at the end of chapter 3 or the uh, first part here in chapter 4 and we recognize that his Galilean ministry has yet to be launched and that the, this uh, what John describes is an early or an early Judean ministry, uh, contemporary with John the Baptist, side by side as it were. And we'll see uh, the context of this in chapter 2 as uh, the Pharisee comes to him by night as he continues to minister around the area of Jerusalem where uh, John's disciples will start to have more and more hang-ups over the fact that Christ is gathering disciples. Interestingly enough, he's not trying to do so. And we're going to get into a passage here shortly at the end of chapter 2 where in verses 23 through 25 there's tremendous numbers of people that are getting saved. And they're believing in his name and they're starting to flock around Jesus Christ but he holds them at a distance. And we're going to have to deal with some of those things because it kind of flies counter to 21st century American standards of what constitutes a... Successful ministry. See, and I think when we examine verses 23 through 25, where Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, I think we're finding a pattern there that really flies in the face of a lot of things we view in uh, in books today. <laughs> I think it's safe to say when we examine the Lord's philosophy of ministry, he's undoubtedly not purpose-driven when it comes to the aspects of what it means to gather people together and. and how we gauge success in terms of the numbers we're bringing in as being the, the standard or the rule on uh, what's a successful ministry and what's not. Okay, Some of that will come up again this morning because we're going to deal with the finances involved. And people, that, they're supposed to be centered on worship and centered on equipping the saints and centered on feeding the flock. Instead, when they get sidetracked by money they end up becoming hirelings rather than shepherds. And what really drove the Lord berserk here in chapter 2 was the money changers in the temple, was the idea of those that were profiting instead of ministering and the uh, aspects involved there. So this early cleansing of the temple preceded the death of John the Baptist. John's not confused here. He's not mixing up this event with what happened later. Jesus undoubtedly attended Passover every year. And did not stop doing so at the age of 12. We don't have a record of anything between 12 and here. Undoubtedly, he was attending year after year. That was his pattern, his custom. Um, But we just don't have record of it. This, however, is the first incident where he is now attending Passover as a spirit-anointed prophet. He is attending Passover in the ministry. See, no longer a civilian, if you want to use those terms. No longer simply a... A uh, believer who's uh just like every other believer from any other non-priestly tribe. See, he would show up, he would offer his sacrifices, he would worship, he would learn from the uh, priests and the Levites, and then he'd return home again like every other believer. Like uh, just your average run-of-the-mill believer off the street, see. Um Like uh, some take a random believer from the tribe of Issachar or the tribe of Zebulun, or the tribe of Dan, or just, you know, your average, ordinary, run-of-the-mill believer. See, I've got to find a better term for that, <laughs> one that I can use with some consistency, because obviously there's certain religions and certain priesthoods where they try to put down the common believer and they exalt the priesthood and so forth. And I don't want to diminish the common believer or try to exalt the pastor or any other Realm of believers above the common believer. And I don't want, I don't want that term common believer to be, uh, derogatory at all. But that was the capacity in which Jesus Christ was attending Passover all of these years. Now though, there's a difference. Now though, he is spirit ordained. He is spirit filled. He is launched forth into his public ministry as the Christ. And so when he attends Passover, it's not just as a common believer, not just as everybody else who's there. He's now unique, see. And as such, he becomes provoked over what he sees. We outlined this for you last week under points A, B, and C. Before Jesus could ever reach a priest or a Levite, he encountered merchants and bankers and this is what we find here in terms of the money changers those that were profiting merchants and bakers and bankers they may not have even been saved <laughs> they certainly weren't functioning in a spiritual capacity but they were making money in the process jesus christ forcibly evicted these profiteers from the earthly place of god the father's personal residence the very unique nature of the temple And I hope we can understand it. We're a little bit separated in terms of time and and stewardship. It's hard for us maybe to relate to the uniqueness of the temple because we're spoiled in our church age priesthood and the fact that each one of us is a priest before God the Father. Each one of us, that is our body, is a temple of the Holy Spirit. We don't attach a significance to a, a location. See And we recognize that there 's nothing uh miraculous about the building you 're sitting in, but it is simply a provision of god 's grace where we can meet together where the Word can be taught but we can teach the Word of God in a in a church building in a park in a warehouse, and you know it 's not the building that makes Austin Bible Church, what Austin Bible Church is, see? But it's the body of believers. That's the priesthood. It's the ministry of the Word of God. And we could do this. We don't have to sit inside. We can go out in the parking lot and do this, see? We can go out on the south lawn. We can go over to the house. We can go down to the park, see? But we're a body of believers assembled together under the shepherding ministry of a pastor-teacher. That's what a local church is. And we're not caught up in a building or a location, all right? But... Put yourself back now 2,000 years ago. Back to the stewardship of Israel. Because in the stewardship of Israel, there was a significance to the temple. And that significance was not only ritual, but that significance was truly reality. Because the place of his glory was a place where, not discounting omnipresence, but where in a very special way the glory of God was manifest. Where man could approach God the Father directly. See? So this was a unique place, and Jesus Christ calls it His Father's house. And uh, the terminology of the Father that we're going to be focusing on throughout the gospel record, throughout the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, we're going to recognize the purpose for His life was to reveal the Father. He has a purpose for His death, and we're not going to minimize that. We're going to highlight it when we get to the cross. But He had three and a half years of ministry before even going to the cross. All right. There's a lot more to why Jesus Christ came than the redemption of humanity. Okay. Now, I run the risk of making people mad by saying that because people want to focus on the cross. And and I don't dispute that. I'm very thankful for the cross. Where would we be without the cross? See, but there was more to the life and ministry of Jesus Christ than the cross. Everything that led up to it so much so that. In John 17, he could say, mission accomplished. I accomplished the work you sent for me to do. And he wasn't talking about the cross at that point, because he hadn't gone to the cross at that point. So hopefully more of these things are going to unfold, especially this morning as we deal with these money changers. Stop making my father's house a house of merchandise. The grammar indicates the process already underway. And he says, put a stop to it right here, right now. Now... we won't go back into all the vocabulary, we did a bit of that last week with the Emporia and with the Marketplace and the Money Changers and and all of that. The, The fact of the matter was it was supposed to be a house of prayer. And they turned it into a house into a uh, house of merchandise. Different vocabulary, by the way, than what the synoptic gospels put out. All three of them—Matthew, Mark, and Luke—don't use house of merchandise. They use den of thieves or den of robbers. See, and it's a bit more violent and it's a bit more forceful at the end and during the Passion Week than it is here now, three we are three years prior to that. All right. This is now the Passover, by the way, the Passover of 30 A.D. This is the spring of 30 A.D. He will be crucified in the spring of 33 A.D. According to the chronology that I have studied and and accept. Now, we move on to point five. The marketing of religion. The marketing of religion was nothing new, nor even of human origin. The marketing of religion was nothing new, nor even of human origin. And for this, let's go back to Ezekiel 28, let's go back to the angelic origins of this evil that we see being played out in Ezekiel chapter 28. And by the way, it's not gonna, this isn't gonna be the end of it either. It's gonna continue. You know, the Lord drove out these money changers and three years later, there they are again. Okay? He's gotta drive them out again. On into the book of Acts, we're finding the marketing of religion. And Peter encounters it. Paul encounters it. See, in fact, um, the source for many of the murder attempts on the Apostle Paul was because of the financial considerations. He went into Ephesus, for example, and he was endangering the, the uh, silver trade there as the silversmiths were fashioning these idols And the more Paul would convince these people that the idols didn't exist or that the idols were demons and that they really needed to be worshiping Jesus Christ, well, that became a threat to those that were making money fashioning these idols. See, they were watching their livelihood disappear before their very eyes, and they realized if they could just bump off the Apostle Paul, that that threat to their livelihood and their profitability could be eliminated. All right, Ezekiel chapter 28. If you've been with us for any length of time, uh, we touched upon this in the through the Bible series. Uh, prior to that, in, uh, I believe it was 01, 2000 and 2001, that we actually taught the book of Ezekiel on uh, Tuesday evenings back in those days when we had a Tuesday evening Bible class. But in Ezekiel t- uh, chapter 28, we have two messages. The first one is to the human ruler in verses 1 through 10. Son of man, say to the leader of Tyre, and it's a message about pride. It's a message about exaltation, self-exaltation, and all the realms here where this human leader of Tyre had fallen. Uh, because of trade, because of riches. Let's just glance at this here momentarily. I'm, the meat of this actually begins in uh, verses 11 of following. But I want you to see the parallel now. Son of man, say to the leader of Tyre, thus says the Lord God, because your heart is lifted up, and you have said, I am a God. I sit in the seat of God's, in the heart of the seas. Yet you are a man and not God. Although you make your heart like the heart of God. Fascinating rebuke there. But this is to the human being. He's called a man who would make himself a God. Every man doing what's right in his own eyes. Every man that decides through pride that, well, nobody's going to tell me what to do. I'm going to be my own God. I'll have my own standards. I will approve that which I approve. Okay? Okay. Behold, you are wiser than Daniel. There is no secret that is a match for you. Ezekiel, of course, was a contemporary of Daniel, living in Babylon as Daniel was ruling with Nebuchadnezzar and in place of Nebuchadnezzar and the circumstances there. We've studied all this. Now, here is a human, and he's got wisdom, and he's got wealth. The problem is, is that it's cosmos wisdom, and the problem is, is that this is the earthly wealth that he's accumulated. He has no perspective on divine wealth, no perspective on divine viewpoint. By your wisdom and understanding, you have acquired riches for yourself and have acquired gold and silver for your treasuries. See, he did this himself. Human effort, what he accomplished. And he was smarter than the next guy and he made more money than the next guy. By your great wisdom, by your trade, you have increased your riches and your heart is lifted up because of your riches. You know, the prosperity test is the hardest test in the world to face for the believer with divine viewpoint. Try to imagine now the unbeliever with no perspective on the word of God. What else is going to happen? See, of course he's going to be lifted up. Absolutely he's going to be prideful. No question. Because using the world's methods, he has received the world's rewards. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have made your heart like the heart of God, therefore, behold, I will bring strangers upon you, the most ruthless of the nations... And they will draw their swords against the beauty of your wisdom and defile your splendor. In other words, now we're going to get a message of judgment. And the king of Tyre, or the ruler of Tyre, I should say, is going to be brought down. This man who thought he was invincible, who thought that his island was impregnable, and the Egyptians that tried to conquer him couldn't do it. Assyrians couldn't do it. Babylonians couldn't do it. See, absolutely convinced that they would never be conquered in their island fortress of Tyre. All right? Very shortly, a man named Alexander is going to come along and he's going to do it. (laughs) He's going to conquer Tyre by turning the island into a peninsula and marching across and sacking the city. Now, that is towards the human being in this passage. In verse 11 now, we have a shift. A term that I have addressed as a prophetic shift. And I don't know if anybody else has ever used such a term or maybe I coined it. In any event, there it is. Verse 11, again... The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre. And now we have different vocabulary. It's not the ruler of Tyre, it's the king of Tyre. It's a different message, but it is, in reality, a similar message. He's going to address pride. He's going to address riches. He's going to address the the wisest of all beings and what it was that destroyed his wisdom. And if the human being involved is the earthly ruler of Tyre, Who is the power behind the throne? Who is really controlling the city? Who is really running the empire? See, we have learned to understand, to look at things not just in the human realm, but to understand the angelic principalities involved. Son of man, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God, you had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. All right, again, we find vocabulary similar to what was addressed in the human side of things but now it's addressed on the angelic side of things the first paragraph he was called a man in this paragraph he's called a cherub glancing down to verse 14 but verse 13 you were in eden the garden of god so do you think he's still talking about this human ruler You think he is still talking about this merchant prince that rules the city-state of Tyre who dominates even the other Phoenician city-states such as Sidon and the other ones. They weren't really a nation as we think of it because they had colonies across the Mediterranean and really across a number of different places in the ancient world. They were really more a confederation of individual city-states with a common you know, Phoenician language, culture, and so forth. But they were based on trade, on economics. They didn't have uh, an army in the sense of the empires would have an army. They would kind of outsource that. <laughs> they would contract. They would hire armies, see, to defend them and to uh, invaders that tried to attack them. They would simply buy them off and things like that. But we've obviously gone beyond the realm of that human ruler because he wasn't in, e- in Eden. You know we can name all the human beings that were ever in Eden, the Garden of God, and there were only two of them, Adam and Eve, and they were driven out before Cain and Abel were even born. So it can't be the Lord can't be talking to human being in this passage. And uh, if you've been with us, or you know, in our marriage study here lately, or you happen to read Genesis chapter three lately, you recognize that there was somebody else in that garden besides Adam and Eve. All right, this crafty serpent. You were in Eden, the Garden of God, every precious stone was your covering, the ruby, the topaz, the diamond, the barrel, the onyx, the jasper, the lapis, lazuli, the turquoise, the emerald, and the gold, the workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you. What a creature. This serpent was absolutely gorgeous, covered in these gems. This can't be describing an earthly animal. Say, I mean we got animals, we can look around, Adam named all the animals. And they had fur, and they had scales, and they had, you know, hair, didn't have hair, whatever. He named all the animals. This is not an earthly animal that's covered with such wealth. But the serpent was, as this passage describes. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. Alright, the recipient of this message is not a born being, but a created being. And that's significant. Again, if we're talking about a human being, it can only apply to one of two people. Adam and Eve are the only human beings in the history of planet Earth that were created rather than born. All right? But this being here was created, not born. You are the anointed cherub who covers. All right? So now we know. We're not talking to a human being here. We're talking to an angelic being, one that held the rank of cherub. Not just holding the rank of cherub, but actually occupying an anointed office. And I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. All right? He is anointed. What does that mean? Set apart for God's holy purpose. See, who was anointed in the Old Testament? Prophets, priests, and kings. Who was Jesus Christ? The prophet, priest, and king. The anointed one. All right? But now here is an anointed cherub, a Christ cherub, a Mashiach cherub, all right? Placed on the holy mountain of God. He has priestly function. If you ever want to do just a fun little amount of homework, take the uh, gems that are referenced there in verse 13, go back and compare it to the ephod of the great high priest. Go back and relate the 12 stones that you have. For the high priest and the nine stones that you have here. And you'll have a pretty interesting study for you there. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. What are those about? Not entirely certain, but we have a, a glimpse when when Isaiah, for example, is brought into the Holy of Holies. And he sees all the seraphim singing, holy, holy, holy. And uh, all of a sudden Isaiah figures out he doesn't deserve to be there. And he feels unworthy and he knows he's a man of unclean lips. And one of the angels comes with one of these stones of fire, one of these uh, coals from the fire, and he touches his lips and says, all right, so much for your unclean lips problem. You are blameless in your ways from the day you were created. There's the creation again. Until unrighteousness was found in you. Until unrighteousness was found in you. Once again, in the human realm... In the human realm, this has only happened for two human beings, that is Adam and Eve, that ever went from an, a righteous state, a perfect and righteous state, to an unrighteous state. The only two human beings that ever went that direction were Adam and Eve. Because they were created sinless and perfect. And in Genesis chapter 3, they fell and they became unrighteous. You and I, of course, are born unrighteous. Not from the day we were created, but the day we were born. We were unrighteous. Until righteousness was given to you. You see the order of this? Righteousness given. This is unrighteousness found. God, by the way, did not impute the unrighteousness to him. It was developed as the consequence of volition being exercised. So this is the difference, all right? Unrighteousness, uh, whenever you were physically born, all right? 1969. Righteousness given when you're born again, all right? 1973. Every one of us followed that pattern, But this is describing the pattern up here. Created righteous and then found to be unrighteous. So we're clearly not dealing with a human being. We're dealing with a a cherub. We're dealing with an angel. And we recognize that we're dealing with Satan himself. The power behind the throne. Who rules these nations? Well, the Bible tells us Satan does. Satan took Jesus Christ on the high mountain and showed him all the nations of the earth and all their glory and said, I will give these to you if you bow down and worship me. All right. Satan rules this world. He's the God of this world. Jesus Christ, of course, rejected his offer. He's going to inherit those nations at some point, but he's going to do so by being obedient to God the Father, not by worshiping the serpent. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. Now, here's where we get to the issue that ties into where we are. Because he was the Mashiach cherub, the anointed cherub, all right? And his anointing had a spiritual function, a priesthood function. Do we have all the details on this? No. But we have the term anointed. We have the geographical reference to holy mountain of God. Okay. This isn't his judicial throne. This is his place of worship. We have the stones of fire. Relating that to Isaiah chapter 6. We have a term here of sanctuaries down in verse 18. Sanctuaries. Plural. Now that opens up more questions because we're accustomed to the pattern of the tabernacle and Solomon's temple and so forth. We're accustomed to a single Sanctuary. We're accustomed to, uh, you know, the outer court, the inner tent with the holy place, the holy of holies, and really that is that inner place that's called the sanctuary. It's conceivable that the two chambers, the holy place and the holy of holies, could be thought of as sanctuaries plural. But it's a, it's an interesting concept here, and we have sanctuaries plural that are referenced in verse 18. That the fall of this Anointed cherub, the fall of Satan, defiled. All right? So all of this is in a temple setting. Are you following this? This whole passage is a temple setting. Just like in John chapter 2, we have the temple setting. Jesus Christ walked into, well, we can't say Solomon's temple. He walked into Ezra's temple, remodeled and expanded and, and built up by Herod. it's often thought of as Herod's temple. Okay. Jesus Christ walks into Herod's temple and he sees the money changers. Now go back to the angelic realm and what do we have? We have a temple setting and we have money changers. What was the source of all this pride? Well, just like with the human ruler of Tyre that we observed in the first ten verses, the circumstances of Satan's fall were identical. Verse 16 says, by the abundance of your trade. By the abundance of your trade. Now, how much do we know about angelic economics? Well, this verse is not much else beyond that. Alright? What kind of currency did angels use? You know, what did they buy? What do they need to buy? What does an angel need anyway? You know, has he got to buy... Spare wings or something, you know? <laughs> yeah, do his feathers ever fall out? He's got to buy, you know? What? Ha- we don't know, okay? And I can't figure out where, you know, angels don't seem to have pockets in any. uh you know, where do they keep their money? <laughs> All the paintings I've seen of angels, they kind of have just a like a dress or a robe or something. I don't know where they keep their money, but they had trade. We find the word trade in verse sixteen. We don't know. Um, We also find trade in verse 18. We also find kings that are mentioned. We don't know what angelic politics were like, but we know that they're organized into a hierarchy because they're called rulers and authorities, principalities and powers. There is a a hierarchy system. There is economic activity, buying and selling. There are political divisions in terms of kings and cities that fall. So with respect to angelic geography, angelic economics, angelic politics, angelic religion, if you want to use that term, we don't have all the details because we don't have the angelic Bible. (laughs) We have the human Bible. We have the Bible that was given in the human dispensations of Gentiles, Jews, and church. And all the information that goes back to times prior to that, we just have glimpses of. If we want to demand more than the glimpses God's revealed, then we're in trouble. Okay. You know how many cults go back to uh include angelic writings and angelic language and, and things like that, New Age and all these other cults that try to get involved with angelic language. It's frightening. So we just simply uh we, we make ourselves content with the glimpses that have been revealed and we don't take it beyond that. But we do have the abundance of your trade. Now here is the anointed cherub who is supposed to be involved in priestly function, who's supposed to be involved in spiritual activities, but instead he is involved in economic activities. He's participating himself in the trade. In fact, uh, greater than anybody else is participating in this trade. He is the, the champion of this trade, called here abundance. You are internally filled with violence. And you sinned. Did God make him sin? He exercised his own volition. The God-given volition. And it started internally. It always starts in the heart before any overt activity takes place. Therefore, I have cast you as profane... Again, that term helps to establish the context as being a priestly context, as being a temple or a holy place. And somebody now that is no longer holy, nobody, somebody that is no longer entitled to be in that place of holiness, cast as profane from the mountain of God. I have destroyed you, O covering cherub. There's the second reference to cherub. From the midst of the stones of fire. Now, Satan still has access to the judicial throne, He still can approach the judicial court and file his complaints as the adversary, as the accuser. In fact, he is there night and day, it says, accusing the brethren. He has access to the judicial courts, but not to the stones of fire, not to the temple setting. Explanation again in verse 17. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. You know our adversary is is genius. He's a brilliant mind. He knows the scriptures, but that that genius is corrupted. See, I don't know if you ever read about these serial murderers or these psychopaths. A lot of them are very brilliant, genius level in their IQ, but they're insane. They're twisted. See, you read about Ted Bundy. This guy was a lawyer. This guy had an extraordinary mind but it was used to such corrupt and, and twisted satanic purposes. Corrupted wisdom, S- similar to what we observed in, uh, with this human ruler. And he had wisdom, great wisdom. But you notice that what it says there in verse 5, your heart is lifted up because of your riches. And this is what we have down here in uh, verse 17. Your heart was lifted up. Because of your beauty, you corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I put you before kings that they may see you. All right. whole lot that goes in there in terms of the fall of Satan. And who are these kings? And what is ground as opposed to what he had access to before, say? Well, a lot of that goes into more advanced studies on angelology. Verse 18. By the multitude of your iniquities... Now, we just had a single sin mentioned in verse 16. Now we have multitude. All right. Why do we teach it's important to keep short accounts? (laughs) Because one sin rolls into another, rolls into another, rolls into another, as the stone rolls downhill. Now, all of a sudden, the iniquities have been multiplied by the multitude of your iniquities in the unrighteousness of your trade. See, it continued on. You profaned your sanctuaries. Therefore, I have brought fire from the midst of you. It has consumed you and I have turned you to ashes on the earth. The serpent no longer had, after this judgment, the gold, the silver, the the sockets, the the gems and so forth. He was now all of that burned away. He's still a serpent. All right. But you can envision the scales and what's described in Job 41 as opposed to the gems and the jewels and what's described up here in verse 13. After the fire, the internal fire burst forth and consumed him. I've turned you to ashes on the earth. In the eyes of all who see you. All who know you among the peoples. You know, it's it's interesting. We tend to think of, as, as a term for races or a term for different forms of peoples. If it was in the human realm, we'd think about Gentiles, Jews, Greeks as different peoples. But now this is an angelic context. And so... Uh, This has led some to start thinking of seraphim, uh, cherubim, others as not just ranks of angels, but actually species of angels or races of angels and so forth are appalled at you. You become terrified. You will cease to be forever. So here is a glimpse of the very first money changer in the very first temple and a little clue as to why it is that Jesus Christ grew so berserk when he, as a, as the Christ, as the Mashiach, not the Mashiach cherub, but the Mashiach, the Christ of God, and he enters into the temple, and this is what he beholds. Point six. The Spirit-anointed Christ was consumed by zeal for God the Father. The Spirit-anointed Christ was consumed by zeal for God the Father. We might say He lost it. Alright? But He lost it in a sanctified sense. He didn't go into carnality with any of this. But He lost it. In terms of being eaten up. In terms of the, the motivation, overwhelming... His thinking and producing this activity. John two seventeen, zeal for my father's house has consumed me. Psalm sixty nine nine. Does this mean that? Uh, does this mean that we should uh, seek for such experiences ourselves? Does this mean that we want to? Uh, I mean, this is almost fanatical, isn't it? I mean, does this mean that we should we should develop a fanaticism to where we're not we're not uh, in control of our activities? Do we want to surrender ourselves to such things? Now, some we got to be cautious with this because there are churches that would tell you this. You want to just give yourself over to the impulses, to the leading of the Holy Spirit. See, as they put it all right, tragically, they're being given over to spirits, all right, but it's not the Holy Spirit. And even though he's consumed, he's consumed based upon his understanding of the Scriptures. And he's not surrendering his faculties. He's not out of his mind. He's consumed, but not out of his mind. And hopefully this will be clear as well. Again, the reference in verse 17 of John 2. He... um, in verse 15, he made a scourge of cords. Okay, so he's not a, not a madman that's just frothing at the mouth now and just beating on people. He actually takes the, the intelligent step to put these cords together to manufacture the scourge, <clears throat> to utilize this weapon, and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. He poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their temples, or tables. <clears throat> Interestingly enough, he didn't just throw cages open and shove birds out, but he instructed the dove keepers to take them away. So he still has access to his faculties. He's still making decisions. Stop making my father's house a place of business. And he has a message to communicate based upon the word of God. Did I give you scriptures last week on father's house? Well, we'll deal with that coming up. Verse 17, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. All right. Now, when did he remember this? When did the disciples remember this? When was this application given? Well, we're going to deal with this, but a lot of this is not going to happen until the resurrection. Verse 22, when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this. A lot of these events that they observe, they don't process immediately okay and this happens commonly in bible class commonly you can listen to a message and you'll get four or five things out of the message but who's to say that another 10 12 20 things aren't there also but they're just being planted a little bit deeper you haven't quite picked up on it yet see and that's not because you know um, that's no fault of your own it's not a flaw in 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 our thinking it's just the nature of the word of god which is alive and powerful and the things that are applicable today he highlights today and the things that are going to come up down the road he's going to spotlight those down the road now he's already planting the seeds now you know where the word of god is hidden in the heart so that it can dwell richly so that it can spring forth so it can bear fruit But that doesn't mean that every single bit of information that comes across today is going to be useful today. It might be useful next week, next year, three years from now, 30 years from now, See the nature of the living and abiding Word of God. Because you walk out of here at 11 o'clock and one hour has gone by. But think about the effects of that hour. Think about all the truth, all the little seeds, all of the little gems that have now been hidden away in your soul. And down the road, in a different location, wherever, see? And your pastor's not following you around everywhere you go. <laughs> all right. Because, you know, there's 12 people here and they go 12 different directions. Okay. But the Word of God's going with you. And you're faced with a test. And all of a sudden that conviction of the Holy Spirit takes hold and a scripture springs forth or a principle or a doctrine or a promise and something gets activated. Why? Well, because, I mean, if you want to think of it in terms of a, of a virus or a, you know, a, a, a germ or something that's living inside of you, okay? Viruses and germs are probably not the best illustration for that. <laughs> Those are all harmful. But think of something beneficial, okay? A baby. <laughs> you got a baby in your womb. Okay, that's not a germ or a virus. It's nice. You're glad. Well, you know, but you're glad when it comes out. And now you have a child and you're not pregnant anymore. Okay, but think about the word of God. It's inside of you. And it's a living thing inside of you. The living and abiding word of God. See, the word which accomplishes the work that the father sent it to do. And so it's sitting there. It's sitting there. And now you're faced with a test. And now the work the Father has sent for it to do is to spring forth and convict you, spring forth and shape your thinking, spring forth and give you the opportunity to apply it. And that's all for our benefit. All right, let's get the framework for this in Psalm 69.9. Psalm 69.9. Interestingly enough, um, David is the greatest, I've often said, the greatest type of Christ that we have anywhere in the Old Testament. He is crying out for deliverance. Save me, O God, for the waters have threatened my life. I have sunk in deep mire and there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and a flood overflows me. I am weary with my crying. My throat is parched. My eyes fail while I wait for my God. Okay, okay. Now, there were some that would just give up on prayer at that point and say, well, prayer doesn't work. I asked and he didn't provide. So, fine. I'll look somewhere else. Take matters in my own hands. I'll give up on God because he obviously has given up on me. No, David's not going to quit on the Lord. And the Lord doesn't quit on God the Father when he prays. Those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. <laughs> well, there you go. You feel like you got enemies all over the place? David says, you know... More than the hairs of my head. Those who would destroy me are powerful, being wrongfully my enemies. What I did not steal, I then have to restore. O God, it is you who knows my folly, and my wrongs are not hidden from you. See, David, the best thing that David had going for him as a man after God's own heart was he knew how to confess. He knew how to throw himself on God's mercy. May those who wait for you not be ashamed through me, O Lord God of hosts. Now, there is a prayer request say in enduring divine discipline and knowing that he's receiving the chastisement of the Lord and recognizing that there are other believers who would be looking at his example and might possibly stumble, might possibly uh, see the suffering servant and and say, well, goodness, if that's what the Christian way of life is about, I don't want any part of that okay in other words, David wants to face his hardship with... Faith, and as a positive example, to be an encouragement to other believers, not a discouragement to other believers. So, may those who wait for you not be ashamed through me, O Lord God of hosts. May those who seek you not be dishonored through me, O God of Israel. Don't let me be the stumbling block. Because for your sake I have borne reproach. Dishonor has covered my face. I have become estranged from my brothers and an alien to my mother's sons. And this was descriptive of David, but it was also prophetically descriptive of Jesus Christ. His own brothers wouldn't even believe in him until after the resurrection. And uh, so many of them. I mean, think about the typology of, of Joseph also. Hated by his brothers. They jealously hated him. They resented him. They threw him down the well. They sold him off into slavery. David, likewise. We find all of these types of Christ. Ultimately, of course, this is speaking of Jesus Christ. I've become estranged from my brothers and an alien to my my mother's sons. For a zeal for your house has consumed me. Joseph had a spiritual priority that Reuben and Simeon and Levi and Judah and all the rest of them just couldn't handle. See, they were shepherds, they were businessmen, they were making money, marrying and giving in marriage, interacting with the Canaanites, doing quite well, thank you. But this Brother of theirs in this coat of many colors, in his priestly garment, who had a zeal for Jehovah, the Lord God of his father. Well, obviously we can't handle that. Similarly with David. Look at all of his older brothers, the ones that we know about anyway. and They were advancing in the armies of Saul. They were uh, men of valor. They had rank in the army. They were doing quite well. In fact, they were rather pleased at having escaped from the uh, the uh, humble house of Jesse. Remember that scorn when they asked David, you know, why uh, why he with whom he left those few sheep in the in the wilderness, and how they mocked Jesse's flocks and the uh, you know the limited means of their family and the the uh, place where they lived as being out of the way and. Here they are big time. Here they are with King Saul. Here they are in the armies. Here they are pursuing the cosmos system. And this little brother of theirs that watches the sheep and sings songs and plays a uh, harp and does all these other things has this zeal for the Lord God of their fathers. (laughs) Well, obviously, he's just a fanatic. Obviously, he he needs to figure out what the real world's all about. You know, Joseph's brothers would have said the same thing. David's brothers would have said the same thing. Jesus Christ's brothers said the same thing. Said you're out of your mind, you're out of your senses. Come on back, let's get this carpentry business up and running. All right, a lot of uh, Paul's audience thought the same thing. They said, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning has driven you mad. What are you, some kind of fanatic? See, you and I will experience the same thing. Co-workers can't figure out, why do you go to church so much for you know? I mean, Sunday morning, okay, fine. You're going to be religious? Okay. Go ahead, go to a church on Sunday morning, once a month, a couple times a month. But if you start going three times a month, four times a month on Sunday mornings, what's wrong with you? <laughs> See, on Sunday night? Wednesday night? Wednesday morning? What is that, some kind of cult? Zeal for your father's house. Zeal for your house has consumed me and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. See, if you have a priority for the word of God and for serving the Lord, you can expect such a thing, not because they hate you, but because they hate him. When I wept in my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. Those who sit in the gate talk about me. I am the song of the drunkards. (laughs) All right. So does that mean he's going to give up? Does that mean he's going to compromise and go the world's route? Not at all. As for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord, at an acceptable time. Oh God, in the greatness of your loving kindness, answer me with your saving truth. But at an acceptable time, David says, this prayer is not going to be answered too soon until his purpose is accomplished. I need to run this race to its conclusion. I need to be faithful unto death, he says, at an acceptable time. We get so impatient in our prayers, we say, answer and answer now. (laughs) Lord, you're already too slow. You should have done something by now. And David says at an acceptable time, and it might not be today, and it might not be this year, at an acceptable time. Deliver me from the mire, do not let me sink. May I be delivered from my foes and from the deep waters. May the flood of water not overflow me, nor the deep swallow me up, nor the pit shut its mouth on me. Answer me, O Lord, for your loving kindness is good. According to the greatness of your compassion, turn to me. See, David knew grace loving kindness and compassion. He knew that he wasn't going to get answers to prayer because he deserved it. He was going to get answers to prayer because the Father is full of loving kindness and compassion. Do not hide your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Answer me quickly. Oh, draw near to my soul and redeem it. Ransom me because of my enemies. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. All my adversaries are before you. Reproach has broken my heart and I am so sick. And I looked for sympathy, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. Isn't it remarkable how even the Lord's disciples all scattered on that final night? They also gave me gall for my food and for my thirst. They gave me vinegar to drink. There's a preview of the cross a thousand years ahead of time. Okay? You see how this psalm is is messianic? You see how it points ahead to this crucified Savior? You see how in typology David had to face this? And yet, consumed by such zeal, he would have it no other way. He wouldn't trade that for anything. As I say, the greatest type of Christ in the whole Old Testament is David. In any event, um, I'll let you read down through the remainder of that psalm on your own. I just wanted to get down to verse 21 where you'd see the cross prophecy in the uh, parallel there consumed me a couple of vocabulary items if you want to pursue them they're not really fascinating in and of themselves but the concept is pretty vivid of being eaten up theo number 2719 now theo all by itself i should point out the astio part here all by itself means to eat all right. And that's a common word meaning to eat, but we've now prefixed it the preposition kata, which is sometimes an intensive and is sometimes it's directional in terms of down. Ana is up, kata is down. Uh, so to eat down, to we would say to wolf down. All right. That'd be our idiom. If you wolf down your lunch or you scarf down some food, we got some different terms. You know, you choke down something real fast. Okay? To be utterly consumed. It's an intensification of Estheo. Estheo by itself, zeal for your house has eaten me. But Kat Estheo, zeal for your house has utterly eaten me up. Consumed me. Devoured me. This is the the totality of it. Akal is the Hebrew. Aleph, A-K-A-L. A-K-A-L to eat. Standard word to eat. You ever find things that eat you up? (laughs) You say, no. Nope, doesn't affect me at all. Nope, nope, not me. I just go to Bible class, fill my notebook, get some knowledge. Wouldn't want to get too uh, involved with it, though. Goodness, that'd be fanatical. (laughs) There are some messages that should eat you up. There are some rebukes that should touch your soul. Otherwise, are you truly humble before the word? My Bible says it's alive and powerful piercing to that dividing asunder of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow. You know, when the, when the word of God pierces that deep, you better believe it's going to have an effect. You're going to be eaten up. You're going to be overwhelmed, as it were. The uh, concept of knowing that the word of God is taking hold and you can't help but do something with it. We're going to try to show how zeal is applied in the proper sense. Not in emotionalism. Not in phoniness. Not in trying to demonstrate to God how much you love God or what you're doing for God. But letting that sword pierce. Letting the Word of God eat you up. Letting that zeal take place when He designs it to take place. Not based on emotions, but based on teaching. Based upon being transformed by that living and abiding Word of God. Point C. This event and message was a scriptural witness to his disciples three years later. This entire event and this message was a scriptural witness to his disciples three years later. And we already read it in verse 22. Fascinatingly enough, He's got some adversaries here, and he's speaking to them, but the message isn't for them. Because they're not paying attention to it anyway. <laughs> they just want to know when they can go back to business again, or why he's driving them out. This whole message, the event, the driving out of the, of the uh, money changers, he's going to do it again in three more years, shortly before the cross. What is it these disciples are supposed to be learning Verse 22, when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this. And, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. As I said last week and a couple of times already, we want to be careful with, our, with that term believe and think that this means that they're just now getting saved. Okay? We mentioned it up in uh, verse 11, after he turned the water to wine and it says his disciples believed in him. Does that mean that they were unbelievers until he turned water to wine, and then they drank the wine, and they now they can believe? No. In fact, the passage doesn't even say the disciples drank the wine. All right, But the sign, the testimony of his divine credentials, and the outworking of their faith, see. This isn't salvation faith. This is Christian way of life faith. Scripture says we walk by faith, not by sight. That's the belief that we need to have on a daily basis in the course of our Christian walk. This isn't salvation faith. This isn't, you know, getting saved and and being transferred from the domain of darkness in the kingdom of His beloved Son. But they believed the Scripture. See, these disciples are going to have to start to put some things together as far as how the Old Testament prophecies related to Christ, how they were fulfilled by Jesus Christ, so that they can now in turn function as apostles in the dispensation of the church. Taking the Old Testament, relating it to Christ, and revealing the New Testament, and that's going to take an incredible amount of faith. One of the events that's going to help build that faith is taking place right here before their very eyes—a work and an illustration. There's really no miracle to this. You don't call this a miracle. Although, given the number of guards around, you could say it's kind of miraculous that they didn't strike him down dead when he was flipping tables over and cracking the whip and doing that kind of stuff. But they're observing his activity, that he's somebody who not just learns the word, but he lives it. They're listening to his message, and we haven't even gotten to the message yet, which was the promise of resurrection on the third day. The Jews said to him, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? And he answered them, destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up. He's got a message to them of resurrection. And, of course, the unbelievers were clueless. They thought he was talking about the earthly temple. All right. Well, thought we'd get through it. Point seven. Let me just give you the point, and then we'll wrap it up next week. The unbelievers demand for a sign, but what they need is salvation. The unbelievers demanded a sign, but what they needed was salvation. He says, I'm not going to give you a sign. The only sign you're going to get is Jonah. <laughs> they don't need a sign he didn't turn more water to wine he didn't walk on water he didn't, he didn't do a sign here he gave them a message and that in itself is pointing ahead to a sign that they have the opportunity to observe three years from now when he's raised from the dead they wanted a sign what they needed was salvation the disciples didn't need a sign either they just believed the message All right, we'll tie some of these things together next week and then we'll move on to uh, the great revival in verse 23. And tremendous numbers believed in many. It says many believed in his name. All right, we'll deal with that. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for this message. I pray, Father, that we would learn from these money changers. We would learn from the example of Satan himself. Father, we would turn to other passages and see what happens when Money becomes the issue instead of the word of God. When the shepherd quits being a shepherd and becomes a hireling. When a church leaves their first love. When a church becomes lukewarm. When a church can become totally distracted and think that they are uh, rich and in need of nothing. But in reality they are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And I pray, Father, we would be convicted on these things. That we might draw a proper application and continue to function according to your principles according to your wisdom, for the glory of your Son. It is in his most precious and holy name that we pray. Amen.